Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm Dan Glickberg from Fairway Market with another delicious Thanksgiving tip. Your turkey should weigh six to seven pounds more than the number of people you are serving. This way, there will be enough breast meat to go around with leftovers for tomorrow. For more tips, log on to fairwaymarket.com. Welcome to the main course. I'm Patrick Martins, uh, the host of the main course. We're broadcasting out of Roberta's restaurant. It's at 261 Moore Street. It's much more than just a pizzeria. Um, it is turkey season. Oh, we, My wrists are sore. My back hurts. Um, I have loaded 5,000 turkeys basically onto trucks, off of trucks, into boxes, it's the, I like to say for Heritage Foods, uh, the company I run during the work week um, dedicated to preserving and selling the foods of small family farms. Um, as I like to say, it's the one day a year that we're actually a big company because we have literally truckloads, 18-wheeler truckloads of turkeys on pallets coming, going, going across the country, meeting us at some parking lot in New Jersey at exactly 6 o'clock. So I am physically and mentally exhausted, but I had to come and uh, dedicate today's show to the turkey farms, uh, the turkey distributors, the turkey movers and shakers, the chefs, um, you know, uh, farmers, after all, do work harder than anybody. So, um, but before that, we love starting with the Week in Review. See, we're official now. Wow. That's Jack Inslee, the executive producer of Heritage Radio Network, which now boasts 28 shows. Yeah. 400,000 listeners a month. Yeah. Uh, what else? Um, this show, I'm not sure how many listeners are, but I think my mother is listening on two different internet site so awesome you should see at least two on the little uh google google thing so take us through the weekend review jack i have not actually i've been so exhausted i've been like in the back of refrigerated trucks <laughs> my core temperature is like you know 10 degrees less i'll than say usual. this you can still listen to heritage radio network in the back of a refrigerator it, it'll work it'll still work it yes will. but it's um it's a, do you know what it is is i if i have my laptop there that'd be great but then i would need some speaker i guess i just need to invest in speaker that's where you can get me for the secret santa there you go awesome speaker so that that it does become more like a radio so all right take us through the weekend review and i'll just react off the cuff tons of stuff going on uh very quickly yesterday was the second occupy big food event and uh, apparently it was a huge success a lot more people showed up i think the bbc was even there and uh erica wide spoke marion nestle spoke and uh yeah that was very cool and speaking of erica wides she was also on wnyc doing a segment for last chance foods and they shouted us out so i figured i'd play a clip from that sure thanks erica host of let's get real when it comes to root vegetables this fall don't forget the tops the leafy green tops of turnips that is often ignored turnip greens are edible and nutritious and should find their way to your plate not your compost heap 
Chef Erica Wides is the host of the Heritage Radio Network show, Let's Get Real. Yeah. The show about finding, preparing, <laughs> and eating food. She's here to talk about turnip greens for this week's Last Chance Foods. Welcome back, Erica. Thanks, Amy. So root vegetables like turnips and beets can be kept in storage. So you guys months. can check that out on WNYC's website. But pretty cool that they shouted us out because in past segments, you know, they credited her just as Chef Erica Wides. No, and it's now true. They know better. It's the news site. I'm telling you. Well, that's real <laughs> nice, Erica Wides. It's funny the Daily Bites that you guys produce five, one for every weekday, mm-hmm. and it's a one minute Daily Bite that gets sent out to radio stations across the country. Um, Erica Wides is like provides more content than any other show. Absolutely true. What is it about her show, Jack? I mean, it's just very factual, it's like National Geographic, or yeah, what? Yeah, there's never an episode where you can't take away some concrete information. You always learn something, and that's you know the most important part of it. And she never has guests. It's amazing. No, I feel so her. alone in here. So, uh, some friends of yours actually celebrated their thirtieth anniversary on Beer Sessions, Van Berg and DeWolf. Oh, yes, Wendy Littlefield. I really like her. She has uh, uh, organized one of the most fun events I ever was part of uh, when I was the head of Slow Food. Um, she lived out in Cooper ta- Cooperstown and ran that brewery Oma Gang, and they built it really from the bottom up, and it almost looked like a Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory uh, place. And uh, she organized an event that was a taste-off of all the major league ballparks hot dogs. And I remember Milwaukee one, but I just thought that was such a cool event idea. So, what did they talk about on beer sessions? Say so they were celebrating their thirtieth anniversary, and uh, here's here's a quote from it from Wendy herself. She says, "We lived in Belgium for three years, right out of college, and began importing, so that when our companies transferred to the states, we would still have an excuse to return to see our friends and visit places we loved." What began as a hobby turned into a career, and we have a decades-long, wacky, improbable fascination with the culture and country and its brewers. That's Belgian beer. So really, they saved a lot of Belgian beers from extinction. Some of the most popular beers now, like Cezanne DuPont, would have been extinct if not for Wendy and Don mm. importing them. So yeah, we spent it's the whole It's very show interesting. In um, Belgium is my favorite place for beer because it's not the northern parts where it's all beer 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 and it's not the southern parts where it's all wine 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 it's somewhat in between and it's like beer with corks in it you know that still age and all that and um it is interesting when i was with slow food uh, carlo taught me that you know they're actually better belgian german you know beers french beers in america than they are there mm. and it's because Beer is not a site-specific, place-specific product most of the time. I mean, you can make a Belgian-style beer here. But, um, you know, it is a very interesting uh, thing, you know, that the Europeans, which are responsible for all this food culture, are also guilty of taking it for granted and losing it. So it's ironic that an American would help save Belgian beer (laughs) culture. But it's true. Very much. Uh, So... Cooking Issues, as always, was great. And the phone lines, you know, it's funny. Dave Arnold, Wednesday yes. broadcast. Uh, Tuesdays at noon. Yeah, and a few weeks ago, A few weeks ago, Dave said something like, you know, we want to know that you're listening, so call in and prove that you're listening. And since he said that, the phone lines have been literally off the hook, and it's been... All right, same here. If you're yeah. listening... <laughs> Jack, can you play a cricket? Yeah. Do you have a cricket sound effect? <laughs> no. Um, so what was he calling in about? So somebody called in and asked about turkey and taste of turkey, and here was Dave's response. Here's the here's the deal with deli turkey. It's just bad. You know what I mean? It's like they uh, they they're forced to kind of overcook the turkey. Um, you know. 
per per the regulations that they do. And so to make up for that, they have to like hit it with a bunch of stuff to keep the moisture levels high enough after they overcook it. And it's just, you know, it's just not turkey. And then they slice it preposterously. It's just not it's just not turkey. It's not turkey. What do you guys think? Anyone in, anyone here think that stuff's turkey? No. No. And you know where you should get your Thanks. turkey this year, right? You should get it from Heritage Foods. Actually, you know what? Heritage Foods turkeys are delicious. Do we still have those or are they sold out, Jack? No, we've still got some. Yeah. Uh, yeah it, Patrick just got back from Kansas City. Well, is that like the turkey capital? or just Yeah, that's turkey, <laughs> turkey capital. Turkey capital. Yeah, the turkeys here at Heritage, and you know, not to pump our own brand or nothing, but the turkeys we get here are, uh, are, are pretty damn good. I mean, I didn't pay for mine last year. I stole it from Patrick, actually, when he wasn't looking, but it was a delicious turkey. Is that true? Um, I wouldn't know. If it was truly <laughs> stolen, I, I have no idea if it happened. By the way, I said we weren't sold out before we were sold out. The um, yeah, I mean it's funny. It's uh, the turkey project is such a massive thing, and we're I'm really excited to have an all turkey show today. Um, what's crazy is you know a farmer will guesstimate how many turkeys will get to the slaughterhouse. So for instance, we partner with Good Shepherd Turkey Ranch, and they hatch all these poults. So they have to first guess how many of their poults will make it through their whole lifetime all the way to November because they're born in the spring. So they might hatch 15,000 poults or let's just use a round number, 10,000 poults. And maybe, you know, six, 700 of them won't make it. So there you're at 9,000 poults. And then, um, you know, at the slaughterhouse, any turkey with even a minor blemish, whether it be a chipped wing or part of their breast is like sunken or whatever, guess what? Gets cut up. So about 20%, of the total turkeys they take to the slaughterhouse comes out in pieces, like just as wings and thighs and this and that. So you have to try to guess how many turkeys are going to come out. So let's say 7,500 turkeys end up coming out of the slaughterhouse. Then, of course, they're pre-sold based off weight ranges in two-pound increments. So 8 to 10, 10 to 12, all the way up to 22 to 24. So you also have to guess how many, more or less, you will have in each weight range. It's usually a little top heavy on the lower weights for the hens and a little top heavy on the middle weights for the for the or you know bigger weights actually for for the toms. And uh, you know it's very stressful because when you finally get all your numbers from the slaughterhouse you end up having to move people around. Now of course home chefs like who get a box of turkey for Thanksgiving and cook it up for their family. You can never really change those guys' weight. You have to deliver exactly what they ask for because they spend a lot of money and it's hard for them to switch around. Whereas our wholesale accounts, which buy like three or 4,000 turkeys, those guys you can kind of like move around or move up a weight range or down a weight range. And then, uh, yeah, so it's just a very complicated process of prediction and that process really starts in March for these farmers. So we'll ask Frank and Danny today. Awesome. If it's depressing on the farm with no turkeys. But anyway, uh, I'm sorry to go off on that tangent, but uh, tell us who else. So a few more interesting shows, and I always recommend people go listen to the actual shows if you're interested in the topics. Um, Anne Saxelby had a woman named Rachel Dutton on her show speaking about cheese microbiology, and Rachel uses these cheese microcosms as models for uh, other microbes and complex communities. It was like really heady stuff, very interesting stuff. So. 
were you even able to get a clip or you were just like, it's too oh, complicated? It's so over my head, but I'm sure there are people out there that understand it all. Anne had a great uh, guest the previous week on Occupy Wall Street and then she, about, you know. Oh, was, yeah. And then it was funny because Anne said, uh, she said something very funny because I'm always talking about how fickle Wall Street people are and they'll sell, sell, sell or buy, 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 you yeah. know, and these are the people that we're supposed to be relying on to, you know, keep structure in the world. So she was saying that we should substitute the bull that sits at the base of Wall Street with a wildebeest because it's more uh, kind wow. of fair weather animal, you know, True that enough. just goes wherever. So uh, that sounded interesting. Very uh, interesting show. The and then uh, a show on the history of olive oil on the taste of the past with uh, Tony DeMarco, who is actually recommended to us by Fairway. And he he really went in on olive oil and the history of it, you know, everything from the Bible you know, God teaching the Jews how to make olive oil to anoint the priests and just very fascinating stuff. So that's definitely worth checking out. And there's also the Jews and pork thing, right? Right, exactly. That's week. the next show, yeah. And this was on um, Taste Matters with Mitchell Davis. He had a guy named Jeff- Jeffrey Yaskowitz who calls himself the Semitic Swinologist. Hmm. It's pretty cool. And he, he's kind of fascinated with the taboo of pork with Jews. He doesn't eat pork himself, but he's fascinated by it. And uh, it was a very interesting conversation on why Jews don't eat pork. And you know. Well, you know my philosophy, right? Yes. Is that they were, when they were trying to get converts to their religion way back when, you know, when the religions were just starting off and all these competing religions were like, we're the real one, we're the real one. Of course, to differentiate themselves, they needed to make certain rules, you know, create certain taboos, certain things that differentiated them from the others. And so they also didn't want to make all these, uh, you know, uh, rules so oppressive that no one wanted to be part of their religion. So uh, I heard one theory, and I really like it, that they started prohibiting things that totally did not exist where they were in the desert. So they're like, no shellfish. Everyone's like, all right, well, that that religion still seems okay to me. They're like, what about no pork? You cannot eat pork. People are like, I don't even know what pork is. That sounds Mm. great. I'm in. Count me in. I want to be Jewish. But um, and then another funny story, Sam Edwards, who is the, uh, you know, of course, founder or, you know, the guy who third generation of S. Wallace Edwards and Sons ham curing. When he heard that one of the rare breeds we sell was the mule foot, he thought that maybe the Jews, uh, some rabbis would allow it because, you know, it didn't have the cloven hoof. It was a mule foot uh, pig. So but it turns out I think they chew their cud. So uh, they still got rejected. Crazy. So what was this guy? Did this guy give a definitive reason why Jews don't eat pork? Tune in and find out. Oh, man. There you so go. annoying. Thanks, Jack. <laughs> God. Um, but uh, so I guess uh, have we missed any other things? It's been a good week. How are the ratings? Week. Yeah. Ratings are great. Everything's great. This week has been, uh, I guess, busy for you guys and busy for us. Tons of great guests coming in. You know, in the food world, it seems this is really the, the prime time. People gearing up for holidays and everyone's got their holiday tips and tons tons and tons of good material on yeah and then everyone goes on vacation in january yeah so um we are going to take a brief break yes before we do that uh, um all the music we'll be playing on today's show is a live performance from chef mark vetri who is uh i believe based in philadelphia oh great chef i like him so much yeah he was here on snacky tunes and he played live music with phil roy who's a very famous songwriter so we have a few songs from that we're going to play it throughout the show mark vetri arguably the best italian chef uh, in america i mean that's what i think mario batali says and uh, he used to be the chef at bella blue on the upper east side and uh, he has a kind of osteria down there like easy 
dining, and then he has a very high-end place, which gets right. rave reviews. So uh, we should go down there, Jack, one day Would for love a field to. trip. Yeah, and he's a damn good guitar player. Very good, very good. So we will come back and talk to people from the trenches, both on farms and behind refrigerated trucks, helping get heritage turkeys out across the country. Looking for hope in a hopeless world. Searching for love in such hateful times. Looking for hope in a hopeless world. Try and ease my mind. Ease my mind. A baby's born in New York City. Wrapped in a blanket that's tattered and worn. Mama's doing the best she can. Finding hope in a hopeless world Her eldest son stayed in school Listen to mama, didn't drink or use But uh, every job he wants he gets refused It takes hope in a hopeless world Looking for hope in a hopeless world Searching for love in such hateful times Looking for hope in a hopeless world Try and ease my mind Ease my mind On the corner stands a young girl The home she left was from the better part of town Her daddy did things she can't talk about is there hope in a hopeless world? Oh, you gotta call for a homeless man. Spare some change for a soldier who fought the war. Put some money in those hats and those tins. Give them hope in a hopeless world. Looking for hope in a hopeless world. Well, we're back. That was actually very nice. Hope in a Hopeless World. I know that was the name of that song. And uh, Frank has sometimes wondered if there was hope in a hopeless world. But <laughs> this year, it seems like things went pretty good. This is Frank Reese, the foremost poultry expert in the United States. And um, I just wanted to say uh, a quote, which I'm going to try to remember from Kim Severson, she says that there's only a very small handful of people that are true breeders of poultry, meaning that they know which male should breed which with female and how to improve a line over time. Uh, there's only a handful of people and that Frank is the best person of the few people that do know how to do that. So, I mean, to be an American original like that is so unusual and um, he's, we've been working together for 10 years now, and uh, I'm really happy that you uh, are able to give us some time on this busy holiday. How's it going for you, Frank? Well, it's, it's rather cold here this morning, but we're doing fine. And uh, you've been doing this for how long, and then how long uh, has it gotten you know, on more of a bigger scale? And tell us about how this year was versus other years. So contextualize the turkey program of 2011. Well, as time goes on, I think we're getting better and better at, at providing this product and improving and trying to move forward and build the infrastructure that needs to be in place. That you know, That's been... Part of the big problem is trying to 
you know, to build the structure that it takes to be able to provide turkeys on a national level. But I have been doing this all my life, so, you know, 50 years or more. So I've been doing this for a very, very long time. And it has been a, a, a learning process to take these turkeys from just selling local to selling national. So take us through that. So, I mean, your first decade was probably just as a child, right? I mean, Yeah, I mean, I was in 4-H for 10 years, and I showed. That's where, you know, we're now we're back in the 50s. In the early 60s, in which I was a kid, and that's where I met many of the, my heroes, the, the, the men and women who raised these turkeys for market back in the 30s and 40s and who taught me uh, what I know about raising and breeding standard-bred turkeys. So what were they doing at 4-H? I mean, contextualize 4-H for us. So you're a young kid with your goose uh you know you bring your most beautiful chickens to the 4-h and how are you interacting with these kind of elderly mentors you know 4-h was there to teach young people how to become successful farmers and back when i was in 4-h everybody was still raising standard bred poultry so and i loved them all i wanted ducks geese chickens and turkeys and so uh not only did were we taught how to raise them and produce them, but we were also taught how to judge, how to select. Uh, I was on 4-H judging teams in which we would go at our county level or even state level uh, and spend time with the older people, the, the, uh, the instructors who would teach us how to walk into a barn full of 10,000 chickens, turkeys, ducks, and geese and pick out the champions, pick out the best. And so that was my early learning, and, and I did that for many, many years. And then when did that transition? Then what happened? Well, eventually what happened was is by the time I was, you know, in high school, the industry was starting to change drastically. Meaning? The, the meaning that these old standard-bred birds that everybody had eaten in this country for 100 years was being phased out. And factory farms were taking over. There was no longer a need to learn how to breed and produce your own meat. Now you were going to be told by the industry exactly what it is you were going to raise. So part and parcel with the uh, bringing birds indoors and producing them on an industrial level and the consolidation of a few companies owning the entire supply was also, and I guess a lot of people don't know this, a kind of genetic uh, monoculture that also got forced on at that same time. Is that right? Correct. Very much so. Uh, but, yeah, and if you want to control a business, if you want to be, you know, the only game in town, you have to control the genetics. So the industry did a fantastic job. You know, uh, they came up with a genetic line, a single line, that grew 300 times faster and was a total monoculture that the farmer could not reproduce and then controlled the market. And so that was the death knell of any type of diversity or any type of, of the farmer having control over what they marketed. So I think I understand this. So, I mean, basically it was the first time that it uh, there was a distinction between a heritage breed and a not. So how do you define a heritage breed? I mean, I understand the corporate culture difference, but what is a heritage breed and what is not? <coughs> okay. 
for a for a turkey or a chicken uh, to be a heritage breed, it must grow slowly. It must grow at a natural rate of growth. Um, have no mutated obese gene. Um, it must be purebred. In other words, that that bird, if you bred it for the next hundred years, it would continue to re- to produce that particular breed or variety. Now, who's to uh, say that the industrial bird isn't growing at a natural rate just for its kind of weird genetics? Well, it's just, you know, anytime you have an animal that has been, you know, a lot of people think these chickens or turkeys grow at these rapid rates because of hormones or antibiotics and all that, and none of that is true. They grow at that rapid rate because they have been mutated at the genetic level to do that. And is that and so, through a natural mating of where they'll just themselves pick the fastest one and breed it with the fastest, or is this no, done in labs? Hybrid, early stages of it was through hybridization. In other words, you, you, you have to have multiple, multiple parent and grandparent stock. It's a very complicated system. That's why it takes a factory farm to do it. But, you know, if you go back to the early 70s in Cornell University, they were able to isolate some chickens that they found that grew much more rapidly. And so they began to select that particular genetic mutation of this animal that grew at this rapid rate. Early in poultry history, they tried to control things through the level of the roxin, through the thyroid, which controls our rate of growth. And that kind of failed, but they continued until they, they found it within that particular line of chicken, and then they isolated. But to be able to reproduce that animal, you must have multiple, multiple genetic characteristics being brought in to that final product of that turkey, which means rapid growth or high levels of egg production are some form of mutation, and you put those mutations together at different levels to produce that final product. So it still did happen through natural. I mean, I always imagined it happening in some laboratory with some scientists moving cells around in a Petri dish. (laughs) No, now you're talking about genetic modification. Genetic modification, or GMOs, uh, is when you take a foreign gene from an unrelated source and implant it into another source. Genetic engineering is what they've done to chickens and turkeys, which is the philosophy that the animal is a machine that you manipulate. Mm -hmm. And... You manipulate it to either speed up or slow down or whatever it is you want it to do, but you manipulate it. And the animal well-being is no concern. Mm-hmm. As long as the animal lives long enough to get to the end product. In other words, the industrial turkey can't live past one year, one year of age because they have manipulated its genes to grow at such a rapid rate that and it is so morbidly obese its skeletal structure cannot support its body and it dies but now but you it doesn't also matter because you that you know you're not trying to get an animal that is well balanced and has longevity you're trying to get a market morbidly obese animal to get to market fast 
But you also manipulate. I mean, you do it under the umbrella of improving the line, but you are still... But my philosophy for selection is totally different. Mm-hmm. When I approach my turkeys or chickens, the first thing I, I, I select for is the total opposite. I select for longevity. I select for well-balanced. I, I don't select one characteristic over another characteristic, because if you do, the animal will suffer. Is that you your old clock I heard? For heat, large meat production, because if you do, then you will lose fertility and health. Mm-hmm. You can't select for high fertility or egg production, because if you do, you will lose meat production. Mm-hmm. But the industry, that's what they have done. You're right. I, I too, select, but I select for a totally balanced animal for the well-being and the longevity of the animal. And that is completely gone from the industry. Well, take us now um, in this last piece, um, a little bit of a chronology. We've been working together for 10 years now, I believe. And as you, I, I have it in my personal email box. It was a real, like, brought me great pleasure to read it. You know, you wrote that, you know, you and us remain the remain the top dogs for you know bringing heritage breeds to a national audience like of course it would be great to be a hundred times bigger but you know we're still on top after a decade and um it's very interesting can you take us through some of the headlines of what you've learned the main thing is is that i'm very proud of with heritage foods is is that you have not compromised you have stuck to the original ideal and that was the authenticity of the food. Mm. And that, you know, that neither you nor I gave in to something sort of like a heritage turkey. But now let me ask this about you. What have you learned? Because you started off on your own, and then you've had a number of farmers come through your system. Um, you've learned uh, to be wary of infrastructure issues because there wasn't really any before you started. Like, take us through some of the things you know now that you did not know 10 years ago? One of the big things is you must have a market for value-added products. That was probably the biggest and hardest lesson to learn, that those first few years when I had to take the turkeys into a USDA processing plant, that a certain percentage of the turkeys are damaged by the plant. Mm -hmm. They get cut wrong or or they, they bruise them or, you know, whatever. And yet the meat is perfectly fine to eat, but I can no longer sell it as a whole grade A bird because mm-hmm. they've torn the skin or they've done something. And now all of a sudden, whatever profit I may, may have made is lost because all of a sudden I have no market for this, this meat. Now I do think you? the number one thing is, is I had to learn and seek out and find value-added products. In other words, if it wasn't for that, we are now selling a lot of ground turkey turkey bacon, turkey sausage, I wouldn't have made it. Mm-hmm. And that was probably the biggest lesson. And yet, if you look at the industry, the industry is completely dependent. The factory system is completely dependent upon that. That the reason why they're able to sell whole turkeys so cheap, I mean literally give them away at Thanksgiving, is, is because that is a lost leader. Interesting. They make all their money off that turkey sliced deli sandwich that you buy at your sandwich shop. That's where the real money is, and they're quite aware of that. Does any other culture in the world eat turkey as much as Americans do? Israel. 
Interesting. Number one consumer of turkey meat in the world. Conservative Americans in Israel. There have always been a connection there. <laughs> that is very interesting. The Italians eat a lot of turkey. Tacchino, they call it over there. Yeah. So um, now this year you kind of scale back um, because you wanted to keep a lot of breeders. Yeah. Um, so explain to us that. What percentage do you hold back on an average year, and why did you make the decision well, to do year that? Well, we only kept back about seven, 800 breeders. This year we've got 1,500. So we're planning on doubling our amount of production of turkeys for next year. Very and interesting. So, um, Plus, there were some varieties or breeds of turkeys that I let some other farmers take who had the best intentions, and they messed them up, and I had to re-rescue them and bring them back. Describe messing them up, like they got sick. Oh, they let them get sick, or they let disease come in, or they weren't selecting the breeders correctly, they were letting the numbers get down too far, or they weren't managing, you know, they let varmints, you know, just... Things happen. Well, a lot of people want to get into this business or think they want to get into this business until they realize what a tremendous amount of work it is. <laughs> well, speaking uh, of work, but, uh, one thing that is never taken off with you, one thing that's never flown, is uh, ducks and geese. I mean, on a small level, but I mean, as we look to this next holiday, uh, you know, the duck and Christmas goose. Uh, what makes them such a challenge to raise from a farmer's perspective? It isn't raising the geese. We can raise lots of geese and ducks. It's the processing. I see. We, you know, we still don't, you know, the processing equipment and the expertise it takes to process ducks and geese is, is just difficult. And we don't have the $100,000 it takes to buy the automated equipment to be able to increase the volume. We, you know, for us to do 50 geese, we could do 3,000 chickens and 400 turkeys in the same amount of time it takes us to do 50 geese. Has, because um, when we do geese, you know, we, it is literally done by hand. Wow. And so, uh, you know, we just have to limit it, and that's, you know, it, it is just extremely time-consuming. Will you save me three geese for Christmas, uh, Frank? <laughs> yes. Well, I know they're doing geese within two weeks. Yeah. They're going to be start doing geese. The other thing I would like for the people to know that I'm very proud of is, is that, you know, with Good Shepherd, and I know Heritage Food knows this, but we are still the only company out there who comes with the APA seal of approval. APA, what's that stand for? The American Poultry Association seal of approval, which means anybody who buys one of our turkeys is being guaranteed by the oldest agricultural organization in America for the authenticity of the animal you're buying. Whether it's a duck, goose, chicken, or turkey, uh, the APA sends judges to our farm to certify that what we are raising is truly authentic, uh, which was very important to me because there are some companies out there now who are selling or calling their turkeys heritage, and they're not. Mm. And so I just wanted to be sure, you know, uh, that, you know, when you buy um, a turkey or chicken or whatever from us, that it truly is. And also we're probably one of the few, if, if maybe any of them at this size, um, we do not do dual production. 
Yeah, you don't have an A line and a B line. No, we do not raise any factory genetic animals in any form, nor do we sell. Everything we we raise is heritage. And so we are completely 100% dependent upon making our living off raising heritage poultry. And therefore, Uh, we're all poor. But we will go to heaven. We're all poor because, you know, there are some barely few other larger people out there who are selling heritage turkeys, but they make their real money off factory birds. Yeah, very interesting. And also, to let the people know if they have any doubts, and I'm very proud of, of an organization called Farm Forward, who's done probably a tremendous amount in helping us stay and keep moving forward also. And so um, if anybody has a chance, you know, Farm Forward is an organization that cares about the welfare, not only of animals, but the welfare of the farmer. Purdue is is starting a competing organization, Farm Backward. They want all (laughs) farms to be as backward as possible so they can make as much profit as possible. But uh, Frank, uh, it's always a pleasure. We could li- you could literally have your own poultry show. Um, I mean, you have so much to talk about. Um, but thanks so much for coming on on a Sunday. Well, thank you so much, Patrick. And congratulations. Amazing. We've lasted ten years, and we're still trying. If it wasn't for the wonderful people that you work with and the people who still believe in what we're doing. You know, a lot of these birds would have long disappeared. We're all about the chefs out there. They uh, they support good food. So um, <laughs> good luck. Uh, relax. Um, enjoy your Thanksgiving. And uh, we'll talk to you real soon. Same to you. All the pigeons are cooing outside my front door. I never heard them sound so pretty before. The neighbor's baby's crying, it's time to be fed. The morning lights call, get yourself out of bed. There's poetry to see, in the exceptionally ordinary. Well, I stumble to the sink, let the water splash my eyes. I glance out the window, look at that war women's sky. An old man is walking hand in hand with his wife, and I'm just a witness. To the glories of life, there's poetry to see in the exceptionally ordinary. Oh, the sun turns light in the shadows, the sound of a bird's simple song, the smell of spring and its flowers. My baby waiting there for me when I get home. Now, who needs fancy eating when you got rice and beans? A simple glass of water, short taste sweet. There's poetry to see in the exception the ordinary. Yeah, take it. Huh. Hello? Hello, is anyone there? Yes. Oh my god, we are on the phone with Daniel Honig. We just talked to Frank Reese. We had a great interview, Dan, with Frank. And uh, we heard all about the genetics, 4-H programs, the farm, the birds growing. But as we all know, farmers do need the help of middlemen to help actually get their product to the final customer. And we have Dan Honig, who is the director of sales for Heritage Foods USA, who has spent his weekend out in a Kansas City parking lot 
moving turkeys uh, from one truck into another and in between putting them in boxes. So really in the trenches with about 20 workers. And uh, he's going to call in and tell us how it went this year. So, uh, Dan, how are you? Good. How are you doing, Patrick? Good, thanks. Are you exhausted? Oh, my God, yeah. We had, um, you know, an amazing day. So we went through, you know, a few, like, a thousand birds just pulling them out and making sure that they're all the right temperature and all with the right labels. Um, you know, the process all started with Andrea, our director of mail order, actually going through and printing out, you know, these thousands of labels. And then we all did this double check, which, I, you know, you were saying, you know, farmers need a little bit of help. I could ima- couldn't imagine raising and having all these turkeys, turkeys slaughtered and then spending a literal week looking at FedEx labels. Because these uh, um, these turkeys, to explain to our listeners, are the the middle of the... We, we ship from a few different places for FedEx, but these are the people that live closest to the Midwest, and you shipped out about a 1,000 turkeys to people's homes for their Thanksgiving meals, right? Correct. Exactly. You know, we had other other shipments that went, you know, diff- split them from different distribution centers. So this was only a, a portion of the turkeys that we sent out this year. Um, we had other teams working, you know, in New York and to be able to get everybody their birds. Um, yeah, I think it took us. We started at eight in the morning and we finished at four in the afternoon. And what and so what happened? Whole- well, what happened in between? We just we took birds from you know we. It's very important to keep birds, especially at a, a particular temperature, because, you know, we don't want anybody to have busted cryos, or we don't want anybody to have turkeys that, you know, don't look perfect, that aren't, you know, good. So it's very important for us to have this perfect temperature, and food safety is really, you know, key. And so as we're, we're doing it in these small batches, where we're in a refrigerated area, pulling the birds, checking the weights, packing them, making sure they're appropriately wrapped and with ice packs and with, um, you know, packaging that'll keep the birds cold and safe as they're in transit. And then we stick in um, the labels. And each label, we have to have them sorted by weight category and farm category and, like, special orders and everybody who wants all of that. And so it's very much about keeping on the dot, knowing exactly what's going on and, you know, double-checking and, like, everybody talking and making sure we're all on the same page. And so literally for that whole time, uh, you know, we had a little bit of a lunch break. But What did you eat um, for lunch? Who did you order in from? We just ordered from a pizza place in Trimble. Nice. I think we had the choice of a pizza place or a gas station food. So you went uh, you went um, high on the hog. That's awesome. Yeah, and so yeah, we just were packing that whole time, and you know you get in a rhythm after a while. So what part of the line were you on, Dan? And what part was Stephanie on, our other heritage employee? Yeah, Stephanie. Um, Stephanie was putting all the inserts in, making sure the insert corresponded to the farm, and was also checking the line. I was doing labels. So what would happen is, you know, we'd have the boxes all built the night before. Um, so the box would come on with the liner, then the turkey would be put in, then the ice packs, and then the box would come to me to look to make sure there were ice packs, the turkey, and then I would put the label on, then we'd fold it you know, sticker it, and then Steph would do the second double check, where it's just kind of, you know, again, always watching and looking, making sure the right things are going on. Well, very interesting, and uh, everyone in good spirits, no big fights broke out at Paradise. Uh, Everyone, uh, who was in charge over there? Was it Mario or Lou? 
Um, for the the turkey packing, it was actually Nick. Oh. Nick was the one who made sure that the pallets were, you know, all the right ones coming out. Mario was starting at first, but then Nick came and Nick Nick really rallied. So. Mario's like, I'm too tired. I've been doing this for too long. <laughs> So um, I, I always love it uh, every time Mario's like, I am in a huge rush. I cannot stop and talk. And then the first guy in his pickup truck is like, Mario. And Mario's like, hello. You know, and then gets into like a two-hour conversation. Mario is a, an ARC product. Uh, it's actually deer season here. Most custom slaughterhouses, what they do is, in processing centers, is they take on, you know, hundreds of deer, you know, you know, weeks. They take on hundreds of deer um, and get them processed from hunters who just go out and really don't know how to field dress, or some of them do, some of them don't. It's kind of like a really messy um, season for slaughterhouses, and uh, the phantasms don't have to do it because they have the, you know, our account. Yes, so if, if it was... Being, being able to do turkeys with them would be impossible if they were taking all these deer. Mm-hmm. But they do take some. So Mario, that's what Mario and they will be running around because there's a share of the harvest that goes on down here mm-hmm. where um, the sheriff department calls the local deer population and brings the the meat in and they donate it to local food shelters and mm-hmm. you know food banks. And so while we were doing that in a completely different and separated area, um, there are some workers who are taking care of the deer it's kind of well, amazing how much goes on in the in a little solder house food. well send my best yeah. to the phantasmas congratulations on a job well done and i will see you tomorrow for cut packed and travel safe all right thanks we'll take a very right. short break and be right back for the conclusion With the saddest eyes You won't talk to me You over me You won't take me back I need you back You're so alive It makes me numb I could survive But I don't want you You're the ruby And I'm the lead Feeling heavy, am I dead? But last night, I had a dream. I saved a life. I proved my love. I took the bullet. I killed a shark. I kissed your hand. I thawed your heart. I thawed your heart. You're not around I'm lost It seems all I do anymore is hit the sauce And at the end of another glass Is a drop of gin And I'm sinking But last night I had a dream I've saved your life I proved my love I took the bullet, 
Andrea is our final guest, uh, and uh, he, Andrea Trabuco Campus, is a great designer and artist. He designs our catalog, but he also was the one to sit down with every single turkey label. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you, um, Patrick. Tell us what is your job. We understand what the farmer does, and we, we just talked to Dan, and we learned all about like what it means to be working the line to put the boxes of the turkeys. But tell us, um, you know, in some big headlines, what it takes to get 5,000 turkeys out. Well, you do the mail order, so 3,000, 2,500, 3,000 turkeys to people's homes. What is that element? Um, what is that position in the food supply? So... Essentially, all these customers are ordering a turkey. Uh, you know, they, they we have a system that collects all their information, and then all this information has to be broken down into what size they order, where are they going. Uh, we're shipping the turkeys from two different centers, and it really has to be very meticulous. Um, any mistake with any of the information will create, you know, a drastic shift, and people won't get what they want. So what I just do is, uh, you know, just very meticulous work, uh, going through Excel sheets, uh, then, you know, communicating with FedEx, uh, letting FedEx know where the shipments uh, should go with each turkey, uh, and then making sure that, you know, all that information is relayed to the line. Uh, that's really a delicate part. You know, like then when they're in Kansas City, packing all the turkeys, they need to know what, you know, what label goes on what box and what size and so on and so forth. So that's really what I did for this part of the project. Um, what is the greatest challenge? It's really attention to detail and making sure that, because you really stand to ruin someone's Thanksgiving if you screw up. So all the work that the right. farmer and the slaughterhouse did, I mean, uh, it's just uh, the meticulous act of, uh, you know, staying focused on everybody. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And that's just part of the thing. You know, we, we have to communicate with every customer that calls or emails. So, uh, you know, it's staying, it's a lot of uh, customer service and really making sure that uh, the people that order get what they want. Yeah. So, so that's, um, you know, it's, it's not the most interesting thing that goes on, but, but that's the point. Uh, it, you do, really do. You do, do many and other interesting things. Well, congratulations on the job well done. I don't know why we're congratulating you. No one has their turkey yet, but it looks <laughs> exactly. like that's everybody. <laughs> looks like everything's going to go well. So you've been at the computer from basically 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. for the past two months, making sure this works. So a job well done. And thank you uh, on behalf of also all the farms that need to get their product to market. I'm sure they would thank you and applaud you, too. So um, enjoy your post-Thanksgiving relaxation, Andrea. You've earned it. Well. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And uh, this has been a great show. We've uh, talked to the man himself, Frank Reese. Then we went to Dan. Then we went to Andrea, me, executive producer Jack Inslee. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. <laughs>